0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today's gonna to be a QA episode, so thank you to everybody asked a question. I appreciate you. There are a lot of good ones here, and I had my heart set on getting through all of them, but as I as I'm reading through them, there are a couple that I know I'm gonna to want to expand upon. So let's see what we can get done here. So, first question is from at Han Hewitt, and she asks: Can your set point weight be changed over time? Referring to body weight set point theory, which would state that your body defends a certain weight range based on several internal biological factors. Hmm. The truth is, Hannah, I think Hannah, um we're not sure. We're not even sure how firm those end ranges are, and that's why it's body set point theory. Like the truth is we don't know, and there's a ton of individuality. So even if we knew, it would still be a matter of we're not sure what your capacity to move your set point is because everybody's different. Now, usually this question is asked in the context of somebody who has a lot of weight to lose. Let's say you're 220 and you want to be 150 the question is usually asked like can I ever metabolically become that 150 pound person can I ever have the same metabolism as myself had I been 150 pounds my whole life and and have the same metabolism quote unquote means can I ever have the same amount of maintenance calories let's say or am I going to have to eat lower than the average person at 150 pounds because I went underwent some metabolic adaptation? In the pursuit of losing weight, and the truth is, yeah, you're probably going to have to eat slightly lower than if you had been 150 pounds your whole life, and that's just some level, some small percentage of metabolic adaptation that's likely, you know, near permanent. Um, it's a small percentage, and it shouldn't be a deterrent for somebody who wants to be two, to go from 220 to 150. And you might say, um, like, like, first of all, metabolic adaptation is happens to everybody, no matter what. For those of you that don't know what metabolic adaptation is, it's basically your body's reaction to uh, a calorie deficit or also a calorie surplus where if you go into a deficit, you know, for millions of years, a calorie deficit meant famine, it meant starvation, it meant being closer to death. So we've evolved and we've, you know, created uh, over time this mechanism, this defense mechanism against weight loss where your body will decrease its, you know, mostly through neat and subconscious movement, its metabolism, so that you don't die, right? And so that is some form of, you know, your body defending a certain weight range. It absolutely does exist. Now, you know, can we override it? Like, you know, is body set point theory this like, uh, uh, like this defeatist attitude? This, you know, can, is there no reason for you to try and lose weight because oh, set point theory, I'm not gonna be able to, no, of course not. Like when people lose weight and maintain weight loss all the time, do people lose weight and not maintain it and gain it back? Of course. Is that all because of some of these biological factors? No. It's like like At the end of the day, weight isn't based on one on, on some one-dimensional aspect. It's based on a complex set of internal and external signals, a combination of environmental and biological factors. And while our body does seem to defend against weight change, I think the idea of set point avoids the fact that we can, to some degree, manually override it. People gain and lose weight all the time, and many of them keep it off. So when somebody asks, you know, can your set point be changed over time? The answer is yes. We can move, you can move your set point. Absolutely. Can you move it all the way to your new body weight? We're not sure. And there's probably a ton of individuality. Like one person who loses, um, you know, 70 pounds from 220 to 150 might, and their, their 150 pound metabolism, their maintenance calories at 150 might be very close you know, very close to somebody who's been 150 pounds their whole life. And somebody else might might see, a you know, a, a large difference. And the, the fact that there's such a big individuality means it's not something that we really like, because you don't know, it can't be something that is holding you back from trying. We just don't know. We're not sure. And all you can do is the best you can do. And so what is the best you can do? What are the best ways to help somebody quote unquote move their set point or reestablish a new set point? And the truth is like, the best thing you can do for moving your set point is just maintaining your weight loss. So if somebody's like, hey, can you move your set point over time? It's like, I'm like, yeah, sure. Like one, we're not really sure uh, uh, how long it takes to establish a new set point. And two, we're not really sure, you know, how much you can move it. But what we do know is that the best thing you can do is maintain that weight loss, is maintain your new body weight. And, you know, quote unquote, albeit a non-scientific way of saying like it, it's like, just tell your body, hey, motherfucker, this is the new me, figure it out. And that is the best thing you can do. So when somebody says, what's the best way to move my set point? It's the same, it's translates synonymously to what's the best way to maintain my weight loss. Um, And and some of the things that come to mind to me when I think about this question in the context is like taking proper maintenance phases to help mitigate some of that metabolic adaptation that happens. Like, you know, if I think of somebody from going from 220 to 150, who tried to do it in one shot, you know, one calorie deficit, one two year deficit, no breaks, nothing and i think of i think of people like the, the the biggest loser candidates sometimes like that just jumped into my mind people who try and lose it in in a semi extreme fashion or at least in an extreme duration without taking a break um that strikes me as a recipe for disaster strikes me as a recipe for not actually taking the time to move their set point M- probably mostly because having such drastic extreme weight loss when you get to that new weight like you probably didn't establish really, really great habits that are sustainable, and it makes it less likely for you to maintain your weight loss. So when it says, when somebody's like, hey, how do I move my set point? Man, maintain your weight loss. Maintain your weight loss for long enough to move your set point. How long is that? We don't freaking know. And how close can you bring it to your new weight? We don't know. But that doesn't change the fact that you should try your best to maintain your weight loss. So one, I would say take proper maintenance phases. Stop trying to do this marathon diet. Diet for eight to 12 weeks at a time, then take a break. Another eight to 12 weeks, take a break. Um, and, and stop trying to do it all in one shot. And number two would be when your diet's over, like actively work your calories back up, you know, quote unquote, reverse diet yourself into a maintenance phase. Um, when you get to, when, you know, obviously in, in, when I said take proper maintenance phases, like obviously you're going to be doing that every single time. But like when the diet is over, over and you're at your quote unquote goal weight or a place you're happy with or wherever it is you decided you want to stop, like work your calories back up. Number three would be keep your steps up, keep your knee up. Um, obviously, we know when metabolic adaptation usually comes through a, down, uh, an incre- a decrease in neat. So the, one of the best ways you can manually override that is to keep your steps up. And the fourth one would be, you know, don't give up all the habits that got you there. So when you get to your new, you know, goal weight or place you want to stop dieting, like maintain the habits that got you there. That's probably the number one thing I can tell people for how to maintain weight loss is don't give up the habits that got you there which kind of is a good reason to have those habits actually be something you can sustain long-term. You know, if you cut out entirely carbs and went intermittent fasting and, you know, did some other crazy nonsense to get, not that not that intermittent fasting or whatever, cutting carbs is crazy nonsense, but whatever, doing a whole bunch of things that you know you can't sustain and then all of a sudden you're at your goal weight and somebody tells you, hey, you gotta maintain your weight loss. like, And you're like, how? And I'm like, well, do exactly what you've been doing. They're like, fuck, I hate it. I can't maintain it. So that's probably a good reason, another, you know, check on the board for, you know, losing weight in a way that you could see yourself maintaining your life long-term. So that was a long-winded answer, but I hope it helps. Listen, we're just not sure. sure. Um, The best thing you can do is maintain your body weight for a long period of time after you lose it. And then that needs to be the follow-up questions like, how do I maintain it? So next question at wellness0273, should you start at a lower body fat percentage when you are trying to gain muscle? Now, I'm going to assume this question is in the context of going into a calorie surplus, like trying to gain muscle. I mean, you can gain muscle technically in any of those phases in certain contexts, but let's assume this question is in the context of a calorie surplus. Should you start a quote unquote bulk at a leaner physique at a lower body fat percentage? Eh, Yeah, you should. You should. You should think of starting a bulk from a slightly leaner physique is probably a good idea. Now, why? Well, when you're in a calorie surplus, you're going to gain weight. And let's say your goal is about 1% of your body weight per month, between 1% and 2% of your body weight per month. The leaner you are when you start that rate of gain, the better your quote-unquote P ratio is. Now, P ratio just refers to the amount of, the ratio of muscle to fat per pound of weight gained. So if you are you do a 12-week bulk and you started from a pretty lean physique, and after 12 weeks, you gained four pounds, like your P ratio would be of those four pounds, what percent was muscle, what percent was fat? And those who start with a leaner physique are more likely to have an improved P ratio and gain more muscle, not more muscle than fat, but a better percentage, a better ratio of muscle to fat. What does that look like? What are those body fat percentages? Man, body fat percentage, first of all, pisses me off. It's just like not a number that anybody knows. And if you've ever heard me rant on that body fat percentage, you know that like these numbers mean nothing to anybody. Like you could Google on Google images, what body fat percentages, and then try and compare it to your body. But the truth is we just don't know. Like most body fat measurements are enough, off by enough where they become irrelevant. Your body fat scale, your like hydrostatic weighing, your bod pod, your in body, like they're just wrong. And, and when I say something like, hey, you should probably start your bulk for guys between 10 and 15% and for women, maybe like 7% higher than that. Like it doesn't mean anything. Nobody listening to that just now knows, oh, well that's me. Like you have no fucking clue what your body fat percentage is. Most of us have no idea. Your scale does not know. Like it, 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 it has a decent relative accuracy, but it doesn't have a good absolute accuracy. So you get on your Fitbit scale and it tells you your body fat percentage. Like that's not really what your body fat percentage is. It's not a really accurate measurement. You know, that's a question for another day is how we can utilize something like that. But yes, the answer is yes. You should start your bulk at a lower body fat percentage so that you have an improved P ratio, AKA for every pound that you gain, you'll have a better muscle to fat ratio. Now, does that mean that you like, like, does that mean that you need to get lean before you focus on building muscle? Fucking course not. Like if you're listening to this and you're overweight or you're not super lean and you're thinking, well, then I shouldn't focus on building muscle because I'm not that lean. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. You just don't need to go into a surplus right now. You don't need to go into a bulking phase, but you sure as shit should be focused on building muscle. Like if you're overweight or you're just not super lean, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be going to the gym and lifting weights and trying to get stronger and trying to build muscle. It just means that you probably shouldn't be in a calorie surplus right now, right? And also like the idea of being in a calorie surplus, it means gaining weight. So, you know, if you're starting your surplus in a body comp that you're already not super happy about, cause you're not, you know, lean enough where you, you kind of enjoy that physique and you're going to start gaining weight. Like if I told you, Hey, do you like your, do you like your level of leanness? You're like, no, I, I could lose a, you know, a little bit of fat. And I was like, okay, do you want to go into a surplus and gain weight? You're like, fuck no. Like, so intuitively it also makes sense that like You'd want to start a weight gain phase from a slightly leaner physique. So intuitively, that obviously makes sense. But also from a physiological perspective, that P ratio will improve if you start at a leaner physique. Next question from at very good dog training. P.S. If you guys ever seen Callie train with us? Um, she's an angel. But if you guys need a very good dog trainer, hit up my boy Steven, at very good dog training. If you're in New Jersey. He's the best there is, amazing, and Callie's an angel. Um, very good dog training. Steven asks, endurance training and muscle building. Can it be done? Now, the phrasing of this question is super important because I'm going to rant on this for a second. Like, First of all, when, you, when you're doing two different modalities, we call it concurrent training. So if I say that during the answer, that's what I mean. I mean trying to do two things at the same time. Can it be done? Well, what is it? Can it be done? Can you make progress in both? Yes, in a binary sense, yes or no. Can you make progress in both? Yes. Can you make the best progress you could if you you know in either, if you were doing that by itself? No. Like if you want to be a really great endurance runner, like don't bodybuild. If you want to be a great bodybuilder, you're probably not going to do a lot of endurance training. Can you make progress in both? Yes. Can you make the best progress you could in either? No. Like and accepting that is the first step. This is the bottleneck for most people. They're like, I want to get jacked and I also want to run a marathon. It's like, okay, like you can do it, but it's going to take you a lot longer and your ceiling for each is going to be a lot lower. And that, that that's totally okay. Like you guys know I'm big on trade-offs and understanding the pros and cons of each decision, making informed decisions. Like that's the first thing you need to accept is like, you're not going to make the best progress that you would if you were doing either by itself. But can you do both and make progress in both? Yes, for sure. But you have to accept that you're not going to make the best progress. Like progress in building muscle already happens slowly. Now it's going to happen even slower, right? And and for a lot of people this is a turnoff. But I need to set the expectation because if you think you're going to run, you know, 40 miles a week and get jacked, like you can, you know, we'll talk a little bit in a second about how maybe how maybe you want to organize it. But um, it's I mean it's like chasing two rabbits, right? You're just doing two totally different things. And by definition, you're not going to do, be doing as well in each as if you were doing them by themselves. and 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 when it comes to this specific question of endurance training and muscle building, they're just two completely opposite adaptations. They engage and train opposite metabolic pathways. They have different fiber type adaption or adaptations. like, you know, strength training is going to push you towards being more type two fiber dominant, like fast twitch uh, fiber dominant. And endurance training is going to push you to being more fiber one dominant, like slow twitch fibers. Like, and again, that's not the end of the world. doesn't mean you can't make progress in both, but like understanding that they're literally opposite things. It's like almost a better example is like, you know, are there people out there that are world-class at the 100 meter and the marathon? Fuck no, because to be really, really good at the 100 meters is requires almost entirely opposite training as a marathon runner. And- What gets you better at one is arguably directly making you worse at the other. Can you be good at both? Yes. Can you be world-class or your best at both? No. Like, but you can still make progress. And I have clients who enjoy a bit of both. And damn, like, that's what matters most. Like, can you make progress in both? Yes. If you really enjoy both of them, great. Like, it's going to take a little bit of extra work and organization for you to come up with a plan that allows you to do both and make progress. But you can. And as long as you understand the trade-off you're making in terms of like, you're not going to get as good at endurance running as you would have if you were doing only endurance running and you're not going to get as jacked as if you were doing mostly or only bodybuilding. That's great. Like you are the one making the decision. You're like, okay, I understand the trade-off and that's fine because I enjoy doing it this way. So if you're somebody who's a heart set on doing concurrent training and doing a little endurance training and some bodybuilding or strength training, like just go into it with the understanding that progress will be slower and... I guess off the top of my head, tips for optimizing a concurrent training plan. It's probably best to have some form of periodization, which just means like having certain times of the year, certain blocks where you're pushing one of them harder than the other, like trying to push on both at the same time where you're like going full throttle, trying to make endurance training adaptations and full throttle trying to make muscle building adaptations. Like that's probably not the right move. It's probably best to think of it as like, okay, for this three month block, I'm pushing my endurance training and I have my bodybuilding strength training on maintenance volume and then vice versa where I'm like just doing enough endurance training to maintain those adaptations, but really pushing my uh, my physique, my training, my muscle building, my hypertrophy stuff now. So periodizing your training so that you're prioritizing one over the other at certain times is likely a really, really good idea, especially if you are trying to maximize progress within this, within this umbrella of already not maximizing progress because you're trying to do both. Um, and then within that, I would probably say training them on different days is is a no-brainer. Um, you know, keeping your hypertrophy training days and your long runs on just different days. And definitely making sure that you're, you're adequately fed in terms of calories. I mean, being in a calorie deficit is going to make adaptations to anything really hard. And if your goal is to increase performance and increase your, phys- uh, your muscle mass or strength and improve your physique, man, I wouldn't try to be doing both of these in a calorie deficit or I wouldn't, or at least wouldn't expect to be getting much better at either of them in a calorie deficit. Um, so be adequately fed, adequate calories. And I would also say adequate carbohydrates. Um, happy for some a keto zealot to come on here and tell me that I'm wrong, but listen, if you are doing some endurance training and hypertrophy training, even just across the year, well-periodized, training on different days, you know, at calorie maintenance or a surplus, you are training a ton of glycolytic work. And even if... Uh, you're doing really long distance running, which might be a reasoning where carbs become slightly less effective, but I would still make an argument that they're extremely effective. Um, Eating adequate carbs is going to serve you really, really well to making sure you're performing well because the truth is you're taking on a lot of work here. Like this is a difficult thing to do and you don't wanna make it more difficult by not giving your body the fuel in terms of calories, but also the fuel in terms of carbohydrates that it really needs. So hope that helps, hope that answers the question. I think the first step for most people is accepting that like you can make progress in both. But you're not going to make the best progress in either. All right. Next question is from Austin Kluber. It says how to get out of the quote bur- like burning calories mentality and work on a healthy relationship with exercise. This one, this one's tough, and it would be nicer to have you in front of me for us to chat about it. But I think the first step is to consider stop wearing your fitness tracker. Like I think uh, uh, removing that feedback, that that numerical feedback, that tangible number that's being spit at you is step 1 one from a, a psychological perspective of not not getting a, a, a numerical return in terms of like a feedback from a, a workout like is step 1 is starting to remove that caloric burn from the equation and stop thinking about it because once you stop wearing your fitbit tracker maybe you stop getting that feedback of like oh you check your fitbit and it says you know xyz calories or you're you're wearing a polar or something like that like maybe stop wearing the fitness tracker and stop getting that number it might help you disassociate the workout from the calories burned if you just don't see it. So I I would say probably a hard stop, stop wearing your fitness tracker from a psychological perspective, but also because that tracker wildly overestimates. I mean, by up to 50%. Listen, the, the, the fitness tracker industry understands that there's a lot of competition and that we love the gamification, that we get excited with numbers and what do you think they're going to overestimate? You think they're going to? Over, you, you, what do you think they're going to be wrong in terms of their estimation of calories burned? They're going to tell you it's less. Nobody's excited when they see less calories burned. No, you're excited when you you know fucking walk on an incline for a half hour and says 750 calories burned. Guess what? I'm going to buy that one. So these fitness trackers tend to overestimate to a degree in which the number is no longer useful. And it's actually leading you down a path of assuming your cal- your workouts are burning more calories. And like when you look at your workouts, and they're burning five, six, seven, eight hundred 800 calories. It's really hard to let go of that because that's a lot of calories. But if I told you it was actually half of that, if I said, hey, Austin, like your workout's actually burning like 250 to 350 calories, you know, 400, 450, 500 even, like instead of the eight, nine, a thousand that you think it is, like it might all of a sudden, remind you that this, this number of calories is way less consequential than you think. Like if you're consistently thinking you're burning a thousand calories, I could understand it being difficult to break away from that because you're like, wow, it's a fuck ton of calories. You know, that is really helping me maintain my weight. But if I told you if it was, you know, it was actually 400 to 350, you'd be like, man, huh? Like, What a waste of effort and time for a very small return. And that's really what it is. Smaller return than you think. Um, so the trackers are wildly over, a uh, uh inaccurate they overestimate and and you really just need to accept that you're not burning nearly as much as you think and honestly trying to burn calories like trying walking to the gym and trying to burn calories and then looking at the your fitness tracker app later and getting this dopamine hit when you see the the fit, the number pop up like without knowing and maybe even with knowing like it's leading you to start viewing exercise as an exchange for food and this is something that bu- that like I like really feel strongly about if you're working out And you're like getting, let's say you go to Orange Theory and you get the splat points tells you how many calories you burned. You wear your Fitbit and tells you how many calories you burned. Like you're without knowing if you are also calorie counting or you're even just kind of uh, aware of calories, you're going to start viewing those workouts as an exchange, as a currency, as an exchange for food. And that's not what exercise is. You're not working out so that you can eat. You're not burning calories so that you can eat calories. Like, Burning calories to eat calories is a zero sum game. Great. You burn some calories, you eat some calories, nothing changes. You don't get more fit. Um, You just end up at a calorie maintenance and that can be helpful. And that, that calorie burn from exercise does assist in weight maintenance, but you're not in the gym. You're not in the gym to maintain your weight. You're in the gym to get fitter and stronger and change your physique. And that's why it'd be nice to have you in front of me because it's like, what do you want to get out of your training? Like, what do you want out of your exercise routine? And if the answer is nothing, or if the answer is, hey, I just want to be able to eat and maintain my weight, well, then okay, like, just great. Like, do a little bit of, you know, uh, 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 make sure you're burning enough calories to do that. But I don't think that's most people's answer. I don't think most people are like, I just work out so I can eat. Like, I don't think so. If I said, hey, if you could, if you devoted the same amount of time that you are to your, you know, calorie burned focused routine towards lifting weights and you, you know, you gain a bunch of muscle, totally change your physique, get a whole bunch of physical and physiological health benefits, like, You'd probably say, oh shit, like I'll take that and maintain your weight, of course. Like trying to burn calories is just going to lead you to viewing that exercise, those calories you burn, as an exchange for food. And I always come back to like, if you were to zoom out and, and two good two good ways of thinking about this and like you imagine 90-year-old you like sitting in a nursing home, like looking down at, at her life, like or his life in a crystal ball, like how would they, that person feel about you? Like 90 year old, you would look at you and be like, you are on the hamster wheel. Fucking, you know, sideways stepping on the Stairmaster, trying to burn calories like crazy when you know that that's not really the reason that you should be here, that you should be trying to get in better shape and stay healthy and not that trying to burn calories doesn't have anything to do with being healthy. Of course it does. Those workouts that you're doing to burn calories are aiding to your overall health most likely. but. Is this something you'd be proud of when you're 90, where this is your relationship with exercise, even though it sounds like you know better? Like, I actually know for a fact that you know better because you're asking this question of, of you want to get out of this mentality. Like, is this a relationship with exercise you'd want for your kids? Is this something, if you had kids, I don't know if you have kids, but is this something that you'd want that, to to give them, to pass on to them? And, and I know that that puts a lot of this on like personal responsibility, but the only way for you to get out of this is to fight that with... Uh, uh, a feeling of personal responsibility and the logic that it's, you know, depending on what you want out of your exercise routine, the workouts that you're doing in an attempt to burn calories aren't getting you there. So if you are actually trying to change your physique and get stronger or get leaner or whatever it is, like the workouts that you engage when you're just trying to burn calories are are a short-term investment. They're just, they're, and I'm not, I don't have anything against People who work out just to just to break a sweat and feel good, like that's fine. But if you're trying to make a change to your life and improve your relationship with exercise, like going in there and doing punishment cardio is just not gonna help. It's not a relationship you'd want for your kids in terms of their relationship to exercise. Like remind yourself what you actually want from exercise routine and then let's be honest and objective about is this serving you? Like take some responsibility and say, if this is not serving me, then I must change it. You know, you don't first of all you don't must do anything, but if this is not serving you, then there's a really good damn good reason for you to change it. It's not something you want for your kids, then don't do it. Don't be that role model. Um, Yeah, it's it's gotta be some combination of personal responsibility and and a logical understanding of this not being something that you want. It's not leading you closer to your goals, right? So maybe stop wearing your step tracker. Understand that you're not burning nearly as much as you think. You know, recognize that this burning calorie mentality is leading you to view exercise as an exchange for food. And it's much easier to manipulate your nutrition... To manage calories than it is to burn five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred calories. Um, and you know, if your goal is aesthetics, then training for training training for calories burned is a short term investment, and not by any means maximizing your, you know, muscle and strength potential. Um, and then you know, just think of it in terms of like a relationship you would want for your kids, or or you being ninety years old and um, looking down and saying, you know, am I happy about this relationship I have? And why do I have it and how can I change it? Next question. I did not write who, who sent me this. It was somebody who sent me it in a DM actually. and said, how to find a nutrition coach that's personalized to your own needs. Honestly, as a nutrition coach, I, I feel like this is a super, super, super simple answer. And the answer is get them on a Zoom call and chat with them. Talk to them about, you know, where you've been, what you've done, your relationship with food and exercise, where you currently are, where you want to go, what's important to you, why it's important. Like, honestly, how do you find a nutrition coach that's personalized to your own needs? Is like, you talk to them and, you know, you reach out to a bunch of people, you get them on Zoom. And if and I promise you right now, if somebody is not willing to get on a Zoom call with you to chat for free, to just discuss your position and, and, and learn more about coaching. And, and if that you guys are a good fit, then it's not the right coach for you. Like if somebody is just working through email, like and only not you're never going to see their face and they won't give you the light of day, you know, time of day to hop on a zoom and talk about your personalized needs. And that's not the right coach for you. So my advice would be to get on zoom with as many people as you can, and just kind of see who you click with and see who demonstrates an understanding of, you, of where you are and is compassionate. And Whatever. Whenever I when uh, that's that's how I run my business. So maybe that's not how most people are, are running their coaching business. But if somebody reaches out to me and they're like, hey, like I want to hear more about coaching, it's like, hey, let's hop on a Zoom. Let's see if we're a good fit. Have a conversation face to face. Then you'll know. Next question is from Higgy's Home. Higgy's Home or Higgy Shome, or Higgy Shome. Anyway, it says I want to build more muscle. Is it better to do a four day split upper or lower or full body each day? The truth is. Technically, both are fine. What matters is that you're hitting each muscle group that you want to grow adequately. And what that means is usually something between eight and 20 sets per week per muscle group, split amongst, you know, kind of as many days as you want, technically. Um, I would say that there are some contexts where splitting up the volume into an upper lower versus a full body versus, uh, you know, and uh, other forms of splits can be a good idea. But the truth is, it doesn't really matter. The reason I might like doing an upper-lower split better than four full-body days is just from some form of mental continuity. Like when you walk into the gym, it's nice to kind of get geared up for a leg day or, you know, get geared up and warmed up for an upper-body day. And I like full-body days. I, I have them in my program sometimes, and I program a shit ton of full-body days for other clients. But if you're doing four days, you can probably better utilize those days doing an upper lower split. What matters is that you're hitting each muscle group twice or more per week and that you're getting between eight and 20 sets per muscle group per week. And you can do that with a lot of different splits. But I would say that if you're doing four days a week, it's probably better to do an upper lower split just from a mental continuity perspective, you know, uh, just in terms of like getting geared up and warmed up for certain muscle groups. But if you hear this and you're like, nah, I really like full body days. Like I don't have a good physiological reason why you couldn't do that. Like you absolutely could. Four full body days is something that I've programmed for people before. And and you know, there are people out there. I know Jeff Nippert has a six day per week full body program that's intelligently programmed and and scientifically evidence-based. Like that's great. So you can do that. Um, I would probably say from my experience that upper lower split's gonna be more enjoyable um and and potentially yield to better results long term, just from an enjoyment perspective. But man, enjoyment, I just told you that it's more enjoyable, but if you disagree with me and it's not more enjoyable, then that's great, then do full body. The truth is it doesn't matter. You need to hit certain uh, um, markers that are going to lead to adaptation, which is about eight to 20 sets per muscle group per week, hitting each muscle group about two times per week, um, getting those sets close enough to failure in the six to 30 rep range. And if you do that on four day split upper lower or four day split full body or five day split, push, pull, upper, lower, legs, whatever, Um, or, you know, whatever, four days push, pull, upper, lower, like, as long as you're meeting those requirements, like, you're gonna be getting near-maximal gains. Next question, what are we at, we're 30 minutes, I'm gonna take a couple more. Um, Marielle Stein 25, how often should someone take a deload week and what does it look like? first and foremost, please go listen to the deload episode. It's one of my most listened to episodes. It's one of the most important episodes that I want people to listen to. So it's a whole episode on deloads. Please go listen to it. I believe it's maybe episode nine. Uh, I'm not sure. But really quickly, TLDR, how often should someone take a deload week? About every four to eight weeks. So three weeks and then a deload or five, four weeks and then a deload or five weeks and a deload or six weeks and then a deload. I happen to find that between three and five accumulation weeks and then a deload. So three weeks and a deload all the way up to five weeks and then a deload tends to be the best for most people. Um, A lot of factors go into which one of those you decide. I tend to use four weeks and then a deload as my baseline default. And then we kind of auto-regulate more or less depending on how a client is responding. And what does that look like? Very quickly, I have three options for my clients. And the first option is doing your deload workouts, which is just Uh, uh, the same workout structure that you've been doing with lower volume and lower intensity. So less sets and less weight. And basically it's just a very easy version of your workout routine. So you can go in there, you can do your normal workout routine, but everything's going to be super easy or you can do half your workout routine. So maybe you do your first upper and your first lower day, and then you take the rest of the week off, or you take the entire week off and I go over all the pros and cons of all of those options in the deload episode. Please go listen to it. It'll answer every question you've ever had about deloads. Sam Vivaros asks, how to feel a better mind-muscle connection when lifting? So basically, mind-muscle connection is like your ability to connect mentally with the muscle that's contracting the one that you're trying to work. So, you know, an exercise where you might feel it a lot in the muscle. Like when I bench press, I don't necessarily feel a big mind-muscle connection in my pecs or when I do a lat pull down, some people don't feel a good mind muscle connection in their back. Like how can you improve some of those mind muscle connections? And first and foremost, is it even that important? Like, is it super important to improve mind muscle connection? Super important? Probably not. Important at all? Yes. So, you know, if your technique is good and your tempo is good and you're, you know, all of those things check out, but you're not feeling the best mind muscle connection, you're probably still really close to getting optimal gains. It's probably not the end of the world. Like, you know, of course, if your form doesn't look good and your tempo's all over the place, you're not controlling the weight, and then you don't feel a good mind-muscle connection, yes, okay, you're, you probably need to change things around. But I find this most, this happened most with people in pulling movements. So like rows, they can't feel it in their back. Pull-ups don't feel it in their back. Um, and so a couple of the things that I think, I think there are three that really jump to mind here, um, four, and now that I'm thinking about it. And the first is slowing down the eccentric, so when you're doing let's say a lat pull down and you're not really feeling it in your back, I guess I'll use lat pull down here. It's like when you pull the bar down to your chest and then you let the bar up slowly. So slow down the eccentric, which is like the lowering portion of the movement. So if you're doing like a dumbbell row and you pull up to the chest, you know, really start to control the eccentric on the way down as you stretch your arm downward. So controlling the eccentric number one first and foremost, you will feel it during the eccentric And you'll have kind of more time during each rep to kind of mentally connect with what's happening. The second tip is to add a pause to what you're doing. So again, we'll take the pull down, pause the bar on your chest and kind of check in with which muscles are being contracted. So slow the eccentric, add a pause. The third would be consider, and I guess this is maybe specific for pulling movements, but um, consider using wrist wraps. So a lot of people lose a lot of that tension in their rows, in their pulling movements, in their grip, their grip strength, their bicep and their forearm. And once you put on wrist wraps, it's a lot easier to kind of loosen up that grip and uh, uh, lose a little bit of that tension in the forearm and the bicep and kind of shift that focus onto the back, which I find works almost every single time. And the fourth would be to consider the rep range of the exercise you're using. If you are doing a curl and you're doing a five rep curl, your mind muscle connection is going to be dog shit right it's it's not an exercise that's going to yield a really good mind muscle connection in those really lower rep ranges if you're doing a lateral raise like five rep imagine doing a fucking five rep lateral raise like your mind muscle connection is going to be dog shit so consider the rep range you're doing if you're doing a deadlift and you're doing 30 a 30 rep deadlift like there's at some point you're just fucking the bar you're not even you've no idea what's going on your form is breaking down you don't even know what muscles are working anymore it's just fucking cardio so consider the the exercise you're doing and wh- which rep range will yield the best mind-muscle connection for that movement. And and some of that just comes down to experimenting. You might grab lateral raises and do t- a set of 10 and you get a really good tension in the muscle, really good mind-muscle connection, good pump in the delts. I might do a set of 10 and I fucking hate it. You know, me personally, I need to do at least 15 lateral raises before I'm like, okay, like it's a, I'm really feeling in the delts, I'm not feeling in my elbows or my, my traps, and there's nothing wrong with feeling in your traps, but sometimes, you know, you get that feeling of like squeezing everything all at once and you just fucking feel it nowhere. So play around with it, do a little guess and check and understand that sometimes just changing the rep range for a certain movement is gonna give you better mind-muscle connection. All right, guys, we're up on 36 minutes here. I said it was gonna be a half hour, so there are a couple more questions here. I'll throw them on next week's Q&A. I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, appreciate you letting me go in depth on a couple of those questions, and uh, I will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me Lips JordanLips at jordanlipsfitness.com. Or check out the website, jordanloopsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.